0: Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Fitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support the show, please head over to the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. All right, now on to the next topic. All right, folks. Uh, welcome back to Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm here today with uh, JT. JT, how's it going, man? Pretty good, man. How about yourself? Good, good. Yeah, we were, we were just chatting a bit before, before I hit record about just uh, all the kind of chaos with school starting, which is I can appreciate for parents and kids and teachers alike any September and kind of mid to early August is going to be a kind of a hectic time of year to get ready for. But this year, like everything in 2020 seems to have a, a bit of a crazy spin to it. So, uh, you, you haven't been been left on the wayside with that experience. Have you?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's pretty universal, you know, Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's worldwide. Nobody's had to not, not deal with this. So yeah, I definitely think we're all in the same boat, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy times. And, uh, um, we've all gotten familiar with zoom and, or whatever video recording software, <laughs> uh, yeah. is, is the, the, the using the user for the, for the job or schooling and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I know it's, uh, it's been interesting, but, um, you know, one of the, I think interesting things about having you come on right now too, is, uh, you're kind of known for, for a body weight type exercise and kind of using your own body as the, as the weight, so to speak. And, um, you've, you've developed a bit of a a program yourself to kind of, to kind of get to that. So I think it'd be fun to kind of jump in and just talk about a little bit of that. Like, how did you get into, um, let's just, let's just go back to the beginning. Why don't you just introduce yourself, say like, how did you get into, uh, fitness in general and, and then ultimately into like body weight resistance type, type workouts?
1: So, um, I'll try to condense the, the backstory, but basically I was never an athlete. And when I was younger, so I played a lot of video games and was pretty nerdy in high school and all that. Um, and so when I, when I graduated high school though, I decided I was going to go into the Marine Corps. And so people were totally shocked and like, man, it's way out of character, you know? Um, but I, but I joined the Marine Corps. I went in and that was like my first real exposure to physical training. And at that point, this is like 20 something years ago, 97, I went in, um, the physical training is a lot of calisthenics and, so you can get fit with military-style calisthenics, but they're more of a blend of like an endurance-based activity. You know, people are familiar with burpees and super high-rep push-ups and things like that. Um, you're building a base level of strength and conditioning, but you're not going to get very strong doing just standard push-ups, right? Doing things like that. And so that was my experience with well, my first experience with real exercise and also with calisthenics. Um, after I'd been in the military for about two years. I was restationed in the middle of the desert. There was nothing to do. I didn't, like, no, absolutely nothing. Way out in the middle of nowhere. And so, my barracks was across the street from a gym. And so I was like, well, I got nothing else to do, and I might as well start going to the gym. And so I walked in the gym the first time, and I saw the equipment, and it looked like just medieval torture devices, right? I had no clue how to use any of it. And so I thought, okay, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Um, and so what I did is I, I actually went to. They have a library at, at on base. And I got Arnold Schwarzenegger's Guide to Modern Bodybuilding, which is a little bit dated, and this again, a long time ago. But I read through that to at least – and there's, like, workout programs and stuff in there. So I got that read front-to-back and made a plan and then went back to the gym because I just knew instinctively going in. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I can't imagine I'm going to get results just going in and doing random stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Ironically, lots of people just go in and start doing random stuff. But that just wasn't my – like, I'm a pretty analytical person. So – so I started doing some lifting then um, when I was in the military <clears throat> and I wasn't like super serious trying to bodybuild or anything. I was just kind of had picked it up a few days a week recreationally and I kept doing it until I had gotten out of the military and up until I kept working out maybe like three days a week or so until I was like 25 and 25, 26 years old and I never even though I I ate like a typical 21, 22, 23-year-old kid, right? I mean, I ate plenty of fast food and stuff like that. I I didn't get fat. Um, But once I ended up getting with my now wife, and we had our first child, she got pregnant, and I didn't change anything. But somehow, the, the weight just piled on. And so from the time she got pregnant till the time our daughter was like 10 months old, I think I gained almost 50 pounds. And it wasn't like a muscular 50 pounds, right? I got clinically obese. I think I was a 35 BMI. And um, so I, I got very overweight. And, you know, I'm sure my overall eating of food probably went up when she was pregnant. She's having these cravings and all that kind of stuff. But that was my first experience with ever being really overweight in, in, into obesity. And we went to the beach. This is before phones with, you know, where you just had all your pictures immediately. You had to get it developed. So I went to the beach and had like a little throwaway camera. We got it developed and I saw a picture of myself without a shirt on. And my wife had been telling me, trying to be nice, hey, you're you're getting fat, you know. <laughs> and in my mind, because i worked out, I'm like, no, I'm just getting big, right? And I was getting fat. Like it was a delusion in my own mind. And when I actually saw the picture and my, my waist was 38 inches, like I, if I'd have kept going, I'd have been in a 40, right? And I'm 5'8", so it's not like I'm a super tall guy. And so it kind of hit me at that point, like, man, I, she's right. I'm fat. Like I, like reality struck me. And so what I did is I decided, okay, I need to lose this weight. And so just going to the gym here and there, you know, just exercising recreationally is not cutting it. So I've got to make a change. And so what I did is I, this is 2006, seven, 2007 or six, right around there. And so at that point, um, I started reading whatever bodybuilding.com and trying, you know, magazines and trying to figure out what to do. So I went with the egg whites and oatmeal and it was chicken breast and brown rice and broccoli, the, the old school fitness or whatever, you know, and I, I did that and I lost some weight. I stuck to it for months on end. I don't know how long, but I was doing egg whites and oatmeal in the morning, bland chicken and rice and broccoli, you know, and that was what I was doing. So I went from the 220, right around 220 that I weighed and I got down to about 195. I wasn't super lean or didn't look, you know, super athletic, but I, I wasn't technically obese anymore. But after I lost, and I'm sure a lot of people can identify with this, as I later learned, after I lost about 20 something pounds, everything just stopped. I still exercise the same. I'm still eating the chicken and rice. I'm still eating, I'm doing all the same stuff, but like my body just said, okay, that's enough. So I stayed the course, um, but it, it was fruitless and I was kind of like stuck where I was at. And again, I kind of resigned myself to, okay, I guess I'm like, I wasn't super unhappy with it because I wasn't obese anymore, but I wasn't terribly fit at this point. And um, I still wanted to lose additional weight. So I kind of stuck with that old school fitness diet, I guess, you, I don't know, what, you know, for lack of a better term, but like clean eating or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I stuck with that for a while. And then in 2009, I came across the book, The Warrior Diet by a guy named Ori Hoffmeekler. And that was the first, at the, at the, up until that point, I was reading, you know, men's health, men's fitness, bodybuilding.com, like I mentioned, that kind of stuff. So I was getting the mainstream advice on what to do. And, you know, I'm putting everything in a, in a log and tracking everything. And then when I read The Warrior Diet, it just intuitively made sense. And The Warrior diet's just a book that talks about eating historically the way hunter-gatherers and then into the Romans and things like that, the way that people evolved to eat. So I read this and I was like, man, this just makes sense. It's not like super scientific, but it makes sense. And so I just decided, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. And so I went ahead and started basically intermittent fasting, 20 and 4 schedule. I wasn't keto or anything at the time. I was still eating some plant foods. But what happened is I ended up dropping carbs significantly and eating mostly vegetables and meats. Um, and I ended up going from the 195 ish pounds where I couldn't seem to break the plateau. I went all the way down to 172 in like less than two months and I got very lean. And so it like a light bulb went off. And that is what set me on the course of researching okay, well, so how did different hunter gatherer populations really eat? And then trying to find studies and falling into paleo and Cordain and all these guys that did early paleo research which led me to keto started reading about ketogenic diet. I experimented with, with a keto diet. I ended up doing that for a few years. So, so what kind of led me into on the nutritional side, because I think everybody listening to this probably understands that exercise can assist a little bit with, with fat loss, but your body adapts and it's very limited. Mm -hmm. And so in order to, and that's why I bring up this story, even for me, in order to really see the fat loss that you want, you're, you're going to have to get your diet under control. And so what led me to the ancestral diet, you know, down that path was that, like I just mentioned the warrior diet and then going down all these different rabbit holes, um, having to do with that. And in researching all that stuff, when I was research, when I was doing ketogenic research, I stumbled across Sean Baker, maybe 2016 or 15 or something. And at first I thought it was crazy. Cause I'm like, you know, you've got to have plants for general health. And it, it, you know, I think that's most people's first reaction but while this stuff was going on, I also had an autoimmune condition. I had some a skin disorder basically. Um, and I was already low carbohydrate. I was already eating no grains. At that point I was already keto. And I had steroidal creams and stuff like that. But it was, there was not a uh, you know, sustainable solution. You can only take the creams for two weeks on, so, so long off and that type of deal. So I kept seeing reports uh, of people that had improvements to their autoimmune conditions via diet. And or via a carnivore diet. And so I ended up deciding, okay, nothing I do for 30 days dietarily really is going to damage my health. So I'm going to go ahead and give this, this carnivore diet a shot. And that's what got me into originally doing a carnivore diet. And that cleared up my skin condition, I also, which was a three and a half year long um, ordeal. I also had GERD for 20 years that pretty much resolved um, all with the exception of a very rare little bit of a, a flare up, maybe 99% improvement in GERD. And so that, that on the health side of things, that's what led me dietarily to, ha- to get to where I'm at. On the exercise side, side of things, like I mentioned, I was doing the traditional um, exercise workouts. And when about five years ago, we were having our second kid. So my wife was pregnant, we're having a little boy. And I knew going into it from when we had our daughter the first time, part of why I gained a lot of weight. Also, when we had our daughter, I was eating more, eating like crap, and also I was not able to exercise as consistently um, due to a new baby. So second time around, uh, I decided, okay, I know we're going to have a little boy. I've reclaimed my health at this point. I don't want to lose that. And so I'm not going to try to get out of the house and go to the gym, you know, three or four days a week and leave the baby with my wife. I'm just going to exercise at home. And so going back to my Marine Corps days, I thought, well, I know I can do calisthenics and I can stay lean and all that, but on the strength side of the house I, I still want to make sure that i'm addressing strength adaptations and, and improving that way and my daughter at this point so this is five years ago she's about a nine-year-old gymnast and so i'd been exposed to gymnastics for about six years at that point point. and luckily being around gymnasts you see females and males who are brutally powerful um, and they carry a lot of muscle and they don't lift it's, it's all through progressive calisthenics And so I looked at that and I thought, okay, how can I um, apply some of the tenets of gymnastics strength training and progressive calisthenics to allow myself to continue to get stronger while I'm working out at home until I can get back to the gym. So my initial plan going into it was for the first year or two that my son's born, I'm just going to train at home and try to do this. And then I'll go back to the gym. And what I found was I was going to the gym and lifting because I know strength training is important from a longevity standpoint, preventing sarcopenia. We can, we can dig into all that stuff, but, um, that was why I was lifting at the time, but because I'd been lifting for a lot of years, I wasn't enjoying it anymore. It was just checking off the box and, and putting in work. Um, because I knew I needed to do it. Right. It, I wasn't one of these people that's like, I know I didn't get into powerlifting. I wasn't chasing a 500 pound deadlift. I, I didn't really care for it. I just knew I needed to do it. And what happened for me was once I started calisthenics, I wasn't weak or anything. I wasn't super, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't deadlifting like Sean or anything like that, but, um, but I wasn't weak. And so when I first looked at progressive calisthenics and I'm like, okay, I can do tons of pushups. And I'm like, now I need to get to a one-arm pushup so I can go unilateral and and make it much more difficult for myself. I was nowhere close. I like fallen on my face. So when I looked at the gap between where I was and where I wanted to go, even for intermediate level calisthenic stuff, right? Not, not super advanced, but the challenge of it um, really spoke to me. So, so when I started, even though I was, like I said, decently fit, I guess I sucked at it. And so looking at where I wanted to get, and then making these little incremental steps of progress toward an end goal of a new skill kind of spoke to me and I ended up really enjoying it and really liking it. Um, So that's why I ended up not going back to the gym. Now it's, you know, we're going on six years later and I've not been back to a gym and I probably never will. And the primary reason was just because of, like I just mentioned, the, the, it was a new challenge where I was burned out on bench press and squat and whatever else. And that stuff wasn't really speaking to me anymore. And it was more just checking the box. When I switched to bodyweight style training, um, it was just funner for me and I developed a love for it. And so now I actually, and and going on six years, I actually look forward to the majority of my training sessions. I I think as an athlete, you can attest, there's days you don't want to do it, Mm -hmm. no matter how much you love it, there's days you don't want to do it. Um, But the majority of times now, I'm actually excited about my training sessions where when I was still lifting, that wasn't the case. So so like I said, I tried to make that not too long of, of a story, but that's kind of where I started. And then that's the long and short of how I got where I'm at.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great background outline, too, I think, because I think there's a lot of questions and avenues we can go from there in terms of kind of like how you've structured things now and, and and what you you assume they're doing and things like that. And it is interesting, because like you mentioned the gymnasts, and like, they're like the poster child of the calisthenic fitness, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you they're, they're the, the top of the chain in terms of how they, they got to that through body weight movements. And it is kind of, intriguing because when you look at like, like, especially like the male gymnasts, I think they almost look like miniature NFL running backs. They're so like right. muscle bound, but they're really right. short. And, uh, you know, I find that I always, I always wonder about that. Or I used to always wonder about that. Cause I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, body weight exercises, like, you know, push ups, pull-ups and that sort of stuff. Like you get, it, it feels like when you first get into that type of stuff, I think that, the limiter is you just can't do a low rep heavyweight thing, right, but um, I don't know if it was just a little bit of a, you know, the myths got dispelled or I just started following the right people like yourself and Ted Naiman and realized, oh yeah, I mean, I guess you could do a one arm pull up and that's going to be about as a uh, you know, low rep probably as you can get in terms of weightlifting in a lot of cases. And there's always kind of a way to maybe manipulate that a little bit to kind of, add in some of that heavier weight, lower rep type stuff, if you want to, if you get to a point where, you know, you're ripping off like 100 push ups in a row or something like that, and, and need to have a little more resistance against you. But my, my original assumption was just that with this gymnast, they're just so explosive with the movements that they're doing that they're kind of generating so much power behind what they're doing that you can almost by doing enough of it over time, you're you're doing some pretty pretty high weight movements. You're just not strapping You're not being held down by a weight, I guess you're pushing through that and flipping and jumping and all that stuff. Is that kind of like how you saw that or am I missing something there?
1: Um, so if, if you think about, uh, if you think about like the size of a muscle, so people will look at gymnasts and they'll see how well developed the musculature is. And so um, you really need to have, when it comes to hypertrophy, you, you need to train a muscle Close. When you're new, I guess you don't have to do this. When you're very new, so I want to be clear: if you're starting out, you don't have to get take the muscle all the way to failure or very, very close to failure to see some adaptation from a hypertrophy standpoint. Um, because you're deconditioned, you're out of shape. It's the growth signal is going to be much. It's going to be much easier for you to get a growth signal than it is somebody that as the more advanced you become, the harder that is. Um, but you need to really train a muscle. Either not necessarily to failure, but within a pretty close proximity to that, um, to recruit the muscle fibers and to cause hypertrophy. But you can do that with a lighter weight, so you can lift a lighter weight for more repetitions. So, like your standard push-ups, you can do standard push-ups for more repetitions, and you can build a, a decent amount of hypertrophy from like a standard push-up. Um, and some and studies have looked at basically anywhere from f- about 40% of your one rep maximum all the way up to like 85% or, you know, in in that range, uh, can be effective for hypertrophy. So that means that like, for example, if you could, um, if you're 85% your one rep maximum was, you know, hundred pounds, you could go all the way down to 40 pounds and use that 40 pounds. As long as you get within a close proximity to failure and still get similar hypertrophy. Um, so when people ask me, like, if they just want to build a muscle, higher rep is actually okay. Higher rep and lower, lower load. But only to a point. And so the problem is because once you get below that 40% of your one rep maximum, it, it's much less um, efficient for building, for, for stimulating hypertrophy. So what's gonna happen is if you're a guy that's doing push-ups and like you know, if you can do 30, 35, 40 push-ups, at that point, if you don't make that push-up harder, you're probably about maxed on the hypertrophy. You're gonna become you know, more efficient at push-ups, you're gonna get more endurance. Or there's, there's still, it's certainly healthy for you. I, I don't want to tell somebody because I see people with this goal, like I want to do 100 push-ups in one set, and that's if that's a goal, hey, dude, have at it. It's exercise. All exercise is good for you. All physical activity is good for humans. I, I'm never gonna tell somebody don't do that physical activity. But if you're, but then I have people tell me like, hey, I'm not building very much muscle. I'm doing all these push-ups, and once you do enough push-ups, for example, that you're past that 40% of your 85% of one rep maximum, you know, from 85 to 40%. Once you're below that 40%, you're just not going to build much muscle anymore. So that's where you have to say, okay, how can I make this pushup more difficult to perform? And that's the equivalent of how do I put five pounds more on a, on a barbell? If you were bench pressing, it'd be easy. You'd say, oh, this is too light. Let me throw five, five more pounds on there or two and a half pounds or whatever. But for most people, they never even contemplate the fact that you can make a push-up harder. So it's like, Hey, look, lift your feet up onto a chair that's you know foot and a half high and now more of the load is dispersed you know to the upper body and that pushup becomes more difficult or start transitioning to a one-arm push-up by grabbing onto a higher surface with the free arm i have all that kind of stuff on youtube that explains it but you you start scaling the movement to make it more difficult and that increases the intensity so now if you could do 40 regular push-ups you're going to fail like eight to ten that's what you want to start failing at a much lower point so now you're getting that strength adaptation again and you're, you're stimulating hypertrophy. And then over time you can work on that new progression to a higher volume to a high, start building your rest back up basically. So it works kind of like a wave. You want to work on repetitions to a point. When your repetitions start to get high, then you say, okay, now let me make the movement harder. And now your repetitions are going to come down. Then you start working those repetitions until they get into a higher range again. And so it's kind of like a wave when it comes to gymnasts, they're when you see them like on rings if anybody can picture a male gymnast on a set of rings they make it look very very easy so if you ever watch the olympics and i think intuitively you know it's not easy but when you watch it they're pound for pound the strongest athletes on the planet and it's insane the amount of strength that they can exert um, when they're doing you know an iron cross or a maltese or some of these skills but they make it look so easy that i don't think people realize just how difficult it is so when you look at the amount of upper body muscle that a male gymnast has it's primarily going to come from these straight arm strength iron cross the maltese and all these movements that a gymnast is doing that would take someone years like even if you just set out not to be a gymnast like what I'm doing I'm setting out to perform all those things I can't do them all yet I've got a few of them and it's taken me like nearly six years so for for gymnasts they work on incrementally making the exercises harder over time and they just step by step add intensity like I mentioned before they add intensity they add intensity until one day they're doing these insanely difficult um, strength strength feeds or strength elements but to your point where that hypertrophy is coming from it's coming primarily from increasing the intensity over time and never performing a super high number of reps that's not to say they never do high rep training but the hypertrophy they're getting is coming from the a, a higher intensity and a, a lower repetition range, um, primarily. So that that's why they build such powerful, the huge biceps. They don't bicep curl. Mm-hmm. Um, they will rope climb, but a lot of that's going to come from if people you know you'd have to Google it probably. But but a planche. If you could picture somebody doing a push up with their feet suspended in the air, like this is going to be planche planche push up. Some of the stuff they do is so high intensity. It'd be the equivalent of 180 pound guy with a 500 pound deadlift. And so that's why they're able to build such impressive musculature with just their body weight. It's really through scaling the intensity um, over a long period of time.
0: This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Fastic. Fastic is a free online phone app That helps you set up and structure the right fasting and or intermittent fasting program that is best for you based on your preferences and experience level. The Fastix team has 25 years of fasting experience and has created a platform that helps you stay on track with notifications, reminders, and allows you to give and receive support from other users. You can also upgrade from the free trial to unlock things like food and drink plans that are right for you, and educational support to help you understand how and why fasting works. Head over to your app store and download FASTIC, that's F-A-S-T-I-C, and check it out. Or head to their website at FASTIC.com. Links to all of this can be found in the show notes. Now, back to the show. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think like when you think of it that way where it's like, oh, this is going to be a six-year project that I embark on to get to get this point, not only is that got to be super rewarding when you get to that, or even make incremental progress along the way. But do do you notice, because here, look, I'm drawing some comparisons here with just like kind of the way I would program endurance training and stuff for folks. And one of the biggest kind of hurdles, I think, for a lot of people, especially when they're new to the sport to get in is they want to set these big goals, which are great. But they're sometimes so far down the road that you stand the chance of kind of your ambitions ambitions waning a bit if you don't have like smaller goals kind of in place along the way. So, you know, someone looks at like my training and they're like, well, if if I want to be you know good at that race, I should run like that. Where in reality, you know, they're kind of forgetting the 10-15 years before where you know, you're working up to that. Where you know you need to do this type of work in order to get a an actual stress response compared to what I would have needed when I first kind of started running. And kind of finding those little benchmarks along the way, I think are one of the more exciting things about the coaching side of of it, because then you get good at saying like, okay, this is where you're at now. This should be our first objective, even though this is where you want to be eventually, this is our first objective, let's zone in on that and get that right. Once we get that, we'll move on to the next and keep kind of getting these small wins along the way. Do you find that that's kind of like a similar I guess, I guess that'd be more along the mental psychological approach with the athletes that you've worked with or people you've worked with with this in terms of kind of goal setting and putting yourself in position to eventually get to that point where you can do an iron cross or some of these more um, higher level performance movements.
1: Yeah, it, it's um, the thing about, I think people understand like diet. I always tell people if you, I hate to even call it diet because if to to say you're going on a diet implies you're coming off a diet and whatever you did, like if you, when I was fat, I'm going to be honest, like we live in obesogenic society. I mean, we're, in modern America, we're set up to fail. Like 30, 40 years ago, people didn't have to try to not get fat. They just didn't get fat. Right. So I openly admit, yes, the society we live in is there's food being bombarded at you from all angles. Like we're, we're set up to fail, but also it was my fault. I mean, I, I, I certainly overate. I did all this stuff wrong. And the problem was the right knowledge wasn't readily available for me to find. It was like, I had to stumble my way um, through to success, but people, I think now they, they get, okay, if I ever go back to eating the way I ate before, I'm going to get fat again. Like there's no magic. I, I can't now say, Oh, I'm going to go away from ancestral diet principles and go back to eating my crap. Cause I'll get fat. And I know this. So I already know that for the rest of my life, I'm going to eat roughly in the same framework. Right. And so when it comes to your physical activity, it's really similar. When you look at somebody that's got a great physique, it was not built in a year. It was not built in a year. The, never was it built in a year. So you got to look at somebody that, if you're looking at them from an aesthetic standpoint, and you go, "Man, that girl has a great physique," or "That guy's really jacked," whatever it is that you're, what your ideal, whatever you're looking at, um, you have to be ready to invest many years to get to the to that point, and that can be discouraging for people. To your point, um, but. Just remember that the health benefits from physical activity, um, from from endurance, whether it's strength, they are going to provide health benefits that are going to help you live a better life for yourself, for your family, in, in perpetuity. So I always try to get people to recognize how good for them, how, you know, what I mean, from from a health standpoint, how good for them it is. And so that's like one of the carrots. Like, hey, listen, you're reducing your biological age. Like, you, what you're doing. As benefiting you in ways that are going to improve your quality of life forever so that so stay the course but then yeah you've got to have these incremental kind of like realistically achievable goals because if, if you're just to give an example a lot of guys reach out because i'm a fairly muscular dude and they're like man i want to build muscle and i i let them know okay how big, like, what, what do you weigh? What do you want to look like? And they'll tell me and I'm like, okay, five, four or five years. And you could look like that. And they're like, are you serious? And I'm like, yeah, it's not happening. I know if you want to go use pharmaceuticals and I don't care what people do, it's your own choice, your own body, whatever. Yeah. You could cut that window down. Um, and there's even studies that show that with certain pharmaceuticals, certain steroids or whatever people build muscle doing nothing. So yeah, it's, it's drastically going to increase it, or, or I'm sorry, reduce the time that it takes you to get to a goal. The problem there is if you're eating following ancestral diet principles if you're if you're carnivore whatever it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be doing this stuff that's like super obsessive for health and then you're going to throw a bunch of pharmaceuticals into the mix but like i said that's neither here nor there it's whatever it's each individual person's choice but the reality is that from building high levels of strength are going to take you many years Building a a really impressive physique, if that's your goal, is going to take you many years. I'm sure if you want to be a competitive endurance athlete, again, many, many years are going to have to get invested. Um, And so that's one of the reasons why I found, like, to your point, again, with the progressive calisthenics is I have people that can't do a frog stand, which is like a pretty basic um, element that will lead you up to handstands. And And the point of it is to start learning hand balancing, strengthening your hands and your wrists for balancing in handstands. So I have people that'll work on frog stand for a couple months. Then they finally get 10, 15 second frog stand and they're like ecstatic, super excited. Or I get people that maybe they were highly overweight and it's a long process and they eventually are doing a handstand against the wall. For a lot of people, that doesn't sound like anything impressive, but I have people that will do a handstand against the wall and they get a 10, 15 second nice handstand and they're like, they're elated. And so I definitely see people celebrating these, these small incremental milestones that, from the outside looking in, probably seem like not that big of a deal, but when you start applying yourself to something, they, they do become a big deal. Um, and I think part of it is just getting outside your comfort zone and doing something that you maybe never thought you would do. I mean, how many adults listening to this have done a handstand since they were a kid, mm-hmm. right? There's a certain point where you just don't do that stuff anymore. And so then when, as an adult, when you bust out a handstand, your first freestanding 10 seconds, you you see Ted Naiman, right? You bust out a nice handstand or something. It's kind of fun. And so, and and, I know it's not for everybody. There's people that love to deadlift. There's people that love to go run, you know, 5k or 10k or whatever. And so I always tell people like the way that I train is not for everybody. Um, In the pandemic with gyms opening and closing and the different challenges people have, I like to try to let people know that I have a system and free on YouTube. You don't need to pay anything. Go check it out. But I do have a system to help you, um, replace your traditional strength training. If If you're a guy that loves the gym and you like to get your lifting in, but you just can't be as consistent because of, you know, the way that things are right now, then I like to say, Hey, look, I have a system for you. This will help. Um, so I do think it has value even for people that it doesn't speak to. If you I've had people try it, like you know, Zubi, if you're familiar with Zubi on, on Twitter, mm-hmm. he during the lockdown, he's like, Oh yeah, I've done some of your stuff, man. He's all I, I can see the appeal to it, but I just love the deadlift. I can't wait to get back in the gym. <laughs> and so I, I think it's important to look at all the different types of exercise that are out there, the different physical activities that are out there, and then find what what speaks to you. And and like I mentioned, this to me um, had the appeal of, of the incremental progress. And from people I've worked with celebrating those little things that maybe don't seem like a big deal in relation to the end goal, but celebrating those little milestones along the way. yeah, They they do, I think, make the journey funner and make you being so far away from your goal. They make it bearable because you're going through the progressions and maybe it's eight steps to get you to one on one on pushups. But now we're on step three or now we're on step four. And so I think seeing, being able to visualize steps and seeing yourself move across those steps, I definitely think there's like a built-in uh, motivation factor to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you, you, hit it on the head too. when you said like, you talked about Zuby wanting to deadlift versus, you know, continue on with bodyweight calisthetic stuff. It's like at a, a lot of times when, when I'm working with someone, I'm always interested, especially in my sport with ultra marathon running. Cause it's like, right. who really gets into that and why <laughs> it's I'll always kind of a riddle. But, From exercise,
1: uh, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I will I tell like, you, because I, I do run, and I'm talking two to three miles, so I don't even like to say I run compared to what you do. It's nothing. <laughs> but I, I do actually run um, during the fall, winter, and spring. My weather here is great. Where I live in California, my summers are brutal. It's 109 this week outside, um, so I don't run in the summer very, very much. But uh, men, endurance athletes, to me, the mental toughness it takes to do what you guys do, if it like it fascinates me, I can't even wrap my mind around the mental, like the intestinal fortitude it takes to push yourself to that extent. So I don't really have a point to what I'm saying right now, other than I just I marvel at what you guys accomplish. Because to me, knocking out a 45 minutes or a 30 minute strength training session is like cake, a cakewalk compared to what you guys do. It's insane.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause I think it goes back to what, what you were saying though, like you find the why in it. And then all of a sudden you have the motivation to take the small steps to get to the big spots eventually. But um, I mean, yeah. And when you get into extreme endurance and even, even when you, what you see, like some of the more standard distance folks doing when they're competing at a very high level, the amount of time they're spending, the normal miles per week and what they could be doing if it were just like, all about only getting fit versus trying to chase some sort of performance at a given distance. Uh, But, you know, personally, one of the things that was, I kind of maybe just got lucky in the sense that like, I had all these little benchmarks kind of built in along the way that I had no clue were not the endpoint. And those led to something else that I didn't know about yet. So I didn't really even see the long term goal until I was like, a huge portion of the way there where like, when I started running in cross country and track in high school, it was more or less cause I was, I was better at that than I was at football and then come college. It was like, well, if they have a team, I might as well try out for it. And right. after that, then, then I start kind of learning some of the more ins and outs and like where the end game is with some of this stuff and get introduced into ultra marathon running and things like that. And uh, you know, I think uh, the, the best example probably I have is when I went, when I actually talked to my, my college coach for the first time about like what you had to do to get on the team he just laid out kind of just the progression of how much running you're going to do as a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, and just kind of outlined the program. I remember thinking like, there's no way I'm ever going to do what the juniors and seniors are doing at any point in my right. life. And now it's like, I'll do, I'll run that much in a day sometimes so, <laughs> in what they would do in a week. So it's uh, it is kind of funny how that, that progression kind of takes place and how you get there and, and all that stuff. And um, it's, it's also from the mindset standpoint, one of the things that interests me about the bodyweight calisthenics stuff is you do get some of that with that. Cause if you are going to decide, all right, I'm just going to see how many pushups I can rip off. You know, you're probably going to stop before you physically need to. In a lot of cases, I know sometimes I'll do every once in a while, I'll just say, okay, I'm going to see how many pushups I can do. And sometimes I'm like super motivated. And I get to that point where my arms are so shaky and I literally can't push myself up anymore. Other times I'm like, you get to that point where like, if you're honest with yourself, you probably could have done two or three more. And it's like, uh, that's kind of the way I describe some of these endurance stuff too, where you have your good days where you feel like every time you were up against it a little bit, you were like just one more mile and you got that mile in and then you did one more. And at the end of the day, you had you know two or three more than you thought you were going to get at a certain intensity. Right. And you know those are the things I think that motivate me to kind of stay in when you have those days where you just click one off and you're like, okay, I just set a new standard for myself. Now I can kind of build on to the next. And you, you almost begin to intuitively see those little wins and benchmark achievements versus necessarily putting them there ahead of time and getting them the first time you went at it. So right. it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a goofy psychology for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, that's what, something you said. Um, I think <clears throat> it's important for people to understand. So like on, on my YouTube, I, I have full training programs up there, like full body, you know, a full body training split have upper and lower training splits and different stuff like that. And the thing that I talk about on there is doing single set to failure uh, and similar to like Ted Naiman. And the reason that I have that you don't have to train with sets to failure to experience muscle growth. The problem is you do have to train with a high intensity of effort and so if you were doing push-ups and your true failure point was 10, if you would have failed in the middle of number 10 and that's all you could possibly get, well, if you were to do that set and you bail at 7, the problem is 8, 9, and 10 were your money reps, so to speak. They're the reps where you were getting the mo- th- those muscle fibers recruited that you need to get recruited. And so when people are new to exercise, one of the – because there are there are advantages to bodyweight training and their advantages to, you know, traditional loaded barbell training or whatever. And the thing about um, calisthenics is you can hurt yourself doing anything. Um, full disclaimer, although I've never had somebody really get hurt doing this, but I, I feel comfortable telling somebody, Hey, do, do a set of push-ups and let's test your failure point. Like you're not going to get hurt. And I mean, in all reality, you know, you're not going to get hurt. So if I tell somebody go get under that bar and give me bench press to failure, I, I'm not going to say that to somebody at all. You know, blow their back out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but the cool thing is, um, if if you're taking your set to the point of failure, you're going to know. Okay, I all I had in me was ten today, and you can log that. You can write it down. Then the next week, when you go into it, you're saying, okay, I'm trying to beat ten. And the when you, when you've been training for a while, like I, I can do a set of something. And if, I, if you tell me, Hey, I want you to stop one set before one rep before failure, two reps before failure, I can probably stop right there or pretty close to it. Once you've been training for a little while, you kind of learn your body and more intuitively you can do that kind of stuff. But when people are new with calisthenics, I do feel comfortable saying, Hey, take these sets to failure to see exactly where you're at. And, and it helps teach people to train with a high intensity of effort because a lot of people, especially if you're coming from being sedentary, um, which you know, I was at one point. When if you're coming from being sedentary, if you're not used to exercise, sometimes you're thinking like, oh man, this is seven, I'm done at seven, when you really mm-hmm. had ten in there. And so that that's one of the reasons why because I tried when I looked at my system that I kind of developed for myself, I thought, okay, I wanna make sure I'm speaking to absolute beginners and helping somebody come in who knows absolutely nothing and is deconditioned and, and has no strength and let them build up over time. And, and progress through the different steps. So that's the reason why if you look at my stuff, I'm talking in the full full tra- full workout training sessions, you're going to be single set to failure. But if you're listening to this, and you're a guy that's got or, or a girl that's got more lifting experience, and you're thinking, okay, well, my gym closed down, I was doing this more bodybuilding, hypertrophy style training, I was doing three sets of, that's fine, you just apply that you don't have to do single set to failure. I'm not dogmatic about everything's, you know, about a certain way. It's, it's still plug and play. Um, but the important thing is no matter how you train all your sets should always be performed with a high intensity of effort. That's kind of the non-negotiable part. And that's the reason why, since I wanted to start with beginner on up, why I try to teach single set to failure is to make sure people are applying a high intensity of effort. Um, so Yeah. I just want to make sure I I don't miss that.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. I think uh, like the the first thing I thought that was really interesting about uh, Ted Namens training program and the way he kind of did things was he came. He's like, look, I'm busy. I don't have time to you know go to a gym for an hour, two hours a day. So the thing I love about this is you know I've got five minutes. I can just go and just do pull ups to failure and. You know, maybe do a couple other movements, uh, like body weight squats or something like that, wall sits, and get a, a good, quick workout in. And by getting up to that failure point or close to it, it's like that's where I'm, where I'm making my progress. And I think with a with a plan like his, um, it's it, you know, the nutrition component is probably even that much more important because, right, if you're if you're staking all your fitness progress on 10 to 15 minutes a day of workout, then you're not really expending a whole lot of extra calories. If you have, especially if you have a sedentary job, maybe if you're doing an active job, then, then you can get away with a little more. Right. But, um, it, it kind of like, when I see what Ted does, it's almost like, oh, he's got like this plan where it's, it's, it's almost like calculated to a degree where he knows like, okay, I need this much of this, this much of that. And then, then I'll be fine over time if I just kind of keep plugging away and then you look at myself, which is certainly low rep uh, or high rep, low weight. I mean, running essentially is the right, yeah. the epitome of that. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I have like the opposite problem where like I'm running so much sometimes <coughs> that I have no clue how many calories I actually burnt. <laughs> so, oh. like, it's like, how do I make sure I have enough for the next round versus uh, right. being on the other end of the spectrum? But um, it, is, uh, it is interesting by that is like, how does... How would you say like your stuff differs from maybe Ted's in 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 the volume side of things? Do you do much? Do you kind of diverge from his his single rep stuff a fair bit, or what's yeah. it kind of go? So
1: my um, got a fly killing me here. So my <laughs> uh, personally my my training and what I try to teach people too is um, to focus more on strength adaptations. Because hypertrophy is good, and if you're getting stronger, you're going to build some muscle and all that. But when you look at longevity and you look at, at human health, um, strength is the stronger correlate. Muscle mass independent of strength is not very strongly correlated. It's, it's really the two. You want you want to have more muscle, but you want to be stronger with that muscle that you've built. And so if you're going to invest the same amount of time you know, on plan A or plan B, I prefer people invest the time into the plan that's building strength more efficiently. And so that's one of the reasons why if you start getting into your, even if you're doing a single set to failure, if that set starts to get into high repetitions, I want to scale and make it harder so that now you are, you're back into the lower rep ranges, which allow you to build strength. Um, that's kind of why uh, maybe a year ago on Twitter, somebody did a pushup challenge and they're like, Oh, let's see who can do the most pushups. And I had absolutely no idea how many pushups I could do. Cause I'd literally never try to max set push pushups. Cause I'm like, I can do a lot. I know that and that's not helping me get stronger. So now I'm doing these way more difficult push-up progressions. Mm -hmm. Um, so that that's probably the biggest difference really is that I just try to make sure that I've got a systematic approach, whether you're doing, whether you're doing low total volume. So if you're doing one set of, you know, I have a a training session that's eight movements that works your whole body and it's one set of each and you're done, it'll take you like 20 minutes. And so whether you're doing something like that or, um, one of the things that is is pretty clear in the literature is that basically volume is one of the drivers of hypertrophy. So if you're not growing on your current plan, one of the things you may need, and there, there's some variables, so it's it's not universal that this is what you need, but you may need to add more volume. So you may need more total sets, uh, more total work. And so you, if you say, okay, I'm going to do two sets, I'm going to do three sets. I still favor doing however many sets you're doing And those lower rep ranges that are going to help you get stronger so that you are building strength and muscle mass concurrently while acknowledging that from a hypertrophy standpoint, like I alluded to earlier in the conversation, you can go higher repetition and you can go lower, um, what's intensity. So in, in strength training, when we talk about intensity, they're really talking about the difficulty of the exercise, the amount of weight that you're moving, right? When a lot of times people get confused because when we say, Oh, increase the intensity, they're thinking running really fast and sweating everywhere and high, high, like for example, high intensity interval training, but in lifting intensity has nothing to do with how hard you're breathing or sweating or any of that. Um, it's talking about the difficulty of the exercise, the load on the bar. Um, and so I tend to favor higher intensity work for your sets, regardless of if that's lower or higher volume. Um, and one of the considerations that the, the, if you're one of the arguments that you'll hear against that is people will say well you've only got a certain amount of a certain ability to recover and so for example with failure sets the more failure sets that you do the more central fatigue that you sustain and so if you're going to do high volume bodybuilding style training let's say you're doing like 50 sets a week total for the whole week if you're doing like 50 sets a week and you're taking all those sets to failure then you're going to have a high level of central fatigue, your central nervous system, your CNS is going to be fatigued. And so your cortisol, your stress hormone is going to go up. Maybe testosterone is going to go down. Your sleep is going to suffer. And so the argument against doing high volume, high intensity work is that you may not be able to recover from it. And so the thing about that is I've noticed that recovery ability can vary greatly between two individuals so one of the reasons I don't have a set, like this is how everybody should, should train, cause I don't think that exists. I'm sure even with, with endurance athletes, I guarantee you, there are people that are world class who train at a much lower volume than other people who are world class, because when they've tried to up that volume, the injuries, they, they notice they start getting more overuse injuries. They start having different problems. And so to me, if you, if you're listening to this and your, and your main goal is hypertrophy, Volume is a driver of hypertrophy. If you've tried the higher intensity, lower volume stuff, and you don't see the muscle growth you want, you can make the strength adaptations, but if you're not seeing the muscle growth you want, then don't be afraid to add volume to your, to your program. When you add volume, so you're adding more sets. So maybe you're doing one set of everything before the failure. Now you're going to do two sets. But when you do that, what you might try is, okay, I'm going to do two sets, but I'm going to stop one rep short of failure on my two sets. I'm going to reduce my failure training a little bit, and I'm gonna increase my overall volume. If you do that and you find that you're recovering fine and you don't have signs of overtraining, hey, then that's not exceeding your, your recoverable volume. It's not an exact science and, that, and there's not even been a lot of research on it really. And so that's one of the reasons why with athletics you have kind of like the art to training for whatever that sport is or whatever that goal is, and then you have the science behind it. And so you've gotta look at the, at the science that's there and then you've got to adjust and you've got to make decisions based on the science and adjust it to the individual. Mm-hmm. I can train five days a week. I can train fairly high volume. I sleep fine. I don't have issues. I have had points where I've been pushing myself pretty hard and I notice I start waking up in the middle of the night. I start only sleeping six hours. I have little things that I've learned to pick up on and I go, Oh, I'm going to take a week off and I'll take a week off from training and everything's back to normal. Mm-hmm. So, so what I would say, and the, something you said as far as nutrition to support your activity level spurred this thought. Um, as your as stress in life goes up, the amount of training that you can handle goes down. So if, if you're listening to this and you're, um, you've, got a, you've got a great career, things are good at home with the family or whatever the case is, if things are a bit good in life and you feel like your stress levels are down, it's probably a good season to train hard because you don't have these external stressors that are elevated. If you're going through big merger at work, I mean, I don't know, the economy's tough right now. If you're unemployed, if you're going through a lot of stress, you should be mindful of, Hey, my, my overall exercise volume might need to come down right now because my, my central, your CNS has already got these other things going on when you're eating in in an energy deficit. So if you're dieting and you're losing weight, I'm not a fan of excessive amounts of exercise for people that are, that are losing weight because if you're seeing the weight come off, then most likely you've got your, your, your protein where it needs to be, your fats where they need to be, you know whatever kind of diet you're following. But, but you're probably not eating a big energy surplus. And so what I always try to tell people is if, if your goal, if you wanna focus more on athletics, think about an athlete. If you wanna focus more on your athletic pursuits, then you should probably eat more like an athlete. And if you're focused simply on fat loss, then you should be eating more for that goal. And you should be adjusting your exercise volume accordingly. Again, I'm, I'm just not a big fan of overly stressing your body while underfeeding it. Um, hopefully that makes sense to people. But, but yeah, definitely monitor your your nutrition, your sleep, your stress, because physical training, in the long run, it helps relieve stress. It's, it's something that's beneficial, but in and of itself, it's a type of stress. And so, you, so you've kind of got to b- balance that and you've got to pay attention. You can even write it in your training log if you keep a training log, which I highly suggest. Um, but you really have to manage your recovery. And so there's not um there's not a blanket statement I could tell people for how much they should exercise or what volume they should use. It's gonna vary based on your recovery ability. Um but one thing you might hear, a turn you might hear thrown around is the minimum effective dose of exercise. Okay, so you've got your minimum effective dose of strength training, and that that is gonna be people saying you should do the least amount of work needed. To elicit a response and maybe that's a little bit more similar to Ted Naaman. or my 20-minute single set to failure. You're you're in, you're out, you built some strength and you're good and like to Ted's point, he's a doctor, he's got a family, he's got stuff going on. If you're pressed for time and you're doing it for health, then that that minimum effective dose is probably all you really need. If you're somebody sitting there saying, hey, I want to sink an hour a day because I want to look like a bodybuilder, you're probably not going to look like a bodybuilder on 20 minutes a day what you've got to look at is you have a minimum effective dose and you want to at least do that so that you're getting benefits from your training as far as forcing adaptation, but then you have a max recoverable volume. And so your, your own recovery ability is only going to let you do so much. So you might see, you know, a recent is like, Oh, people doing 20 reps um, get, or I'm sorry, 20, 20 sets per week got better results than people doing 10 sets per week for a muscle group. So you might read that and say, Oh, well, I want to grow my chest. So when I'm doing my pushups, I'm gonna do 20 sets a week for my chest. And that's fine. As long as that with all the rest of the exercise you're doing doesn't exceed your max ability to recover. And the way that you can tell the easiest way I found to tell if you're exceeding your recovery ability is if you're applying a high intensity of effort to your training and you are not exceeding your recovery ability, you'll make progress on a week to week basis. Mm. If you're not making progress and you're, if, if you're honestly applying a high intensive effort, so you know, if, when you're doing your training, if you're trying hard and you're not making progress, you're overtraining, I can almost guarantee it. And so, but, but the important distinction there is, I don't make progress every week on everything. It's never gonna happen like that. So don't, don't go in and you got your push-ups and you say, oh, I didn't make progress this week, so I must be overtraining. But if you're doing eight exercises, and over the course of an entire week, and maybe you had three training sessions that week, for example, if you didn't add to any of them for a week, that should let a little alarm go off where you say, maybe I'm overtraining, let's check next week. If the second week you don't make any progress again, now it's time to look at the different variables and make a change. And it could be you need to eat more. It doesn't mean that you guys necessarily have to do less exercise, or but you need to either eat, eat more, sleep more, is there something stressful going on? Have you been fighting with your wife? I, you know, you got to look at the situation because on a week-to-week basis, you should be making progress incrementally. Um, and like I said, maybe that's two-week bi-weekly progress, whatever. But you should be making progress. If progress stalls, then chances are, as long as your program is is well laid, then chances are you're overtraining, you're rece- you're exceeding your max recoverable volume. So that that's how I would tell people to know if the volume's too much that's going to be your cue for, if it's too much.
0: Mm -hmm. No, that's perfect. I think I I use the basically the same principle with, with running and endurance training and stuff. And like the example I usually share with that is if I'm focusing on making improvements on kind of like my VO two max system, where I'm going to use short intervals of around three minutes uh, you know, I could go out and do like for that first week, a single day where I do like eight by three minutes, and if that, but if that puts me in the tank for the remainder of that week, and by the time I get around to being able to execute that workout again at the same or better efficacy, it's a week later, I have to ask myself would I have been better off doing either like two sets of four by three minutes on two separate days and feel relatively good the whole week and still get that same relative volume at that intensity? or even maybe do one day a set of five by three and another day a set of four by three and actually get an extra three minutes of volume total that week at the same <clears throat> right. intensity. So that recovery piece to the puzzle is huge. And then yeah, once you start adding in, like what you said, like stress from other things in life, it, it really does shine a light on kind of how some of these things kind of uh, end up belly flopping on people when they, when they get a little too ambitious or just structure it just wrong or aren't paying attention to the other things like the sleep, the, emotional relationship things and work and all that other stuff. And so timing can be everything with some of that stuff.
1: Right. And and that's one of the things I, what you just talked about um, made me think of this from, from a strength training perspective. When you, another thing I'll see people do is they'll do a, and this is really common. They'll do a, a set to failure of something, whether it's with weights or, or calisthenics. And then what they'll do is 60 seconds later, they're back doing another set to failure. And then 60 seconds later, another set to failure. So let's say they did three sets of bench press or they did three sets of push-ups, all to failure 60 seconds apart. That's not wrong. You're still gonna make some adaptation, but you've got to look at what your primary goal is. And a lot of times I talk to people and they want to be bigger, stronger, faster, all you know, but they don't have their goals clearly outlined. And so once we start talking, it's like, okay, your primary goal turns out it's to build muscle. You wanna build muscle. Awesome if you rested two minutes between those sets, you would get a higher number of repetitions performed and you would build more muscle. So stop resting 60 seconds between your sets. Mm-hmm. And the hardest part for people with something like that is when you're really huffing and puffing and you get a good, your gas. like, you know, when you exert a high amount of effort, it feels good. You feel like you mm-hmm. got something done. I've had some people were arrested in three minutes between their sets and they're like, I can't do this. I'm like, can I go on Twitter? I'm like, do whatever you want. I don't care. Play play a video game on your phone. It doesn't matter. But if you're doing, the thing that's important to understand is from a strength or a hypertrophy standpoint, if today is the day that you're doing, and I keep using push-ups just so people get a clear picture in their mind. It applies to anything. It doesn't matter. But if today's the day you're doing push-ups or bench press, and you're doing three sets, as long as you take those three sets with a high intensity of effort, somewhere close to failure, don't have to fail, but somewhere close, What's going to happen is whatever rest intervals and whatever you had to do to make those three sets as productive as possible is going to build the most strength and get you the most hypertrophy. So if resting less made you do 10 reps, eight reps, and seven reps, but resting more made you do 11 or maybe the first one was still 10 regardless, but then you did 10, 10 and nine, you built more muscle and you're going to get stronger from the longer rest. And so when it comes to, to rest periods, if resting longer, then whatever amount did not get you any extra repetitions or any, any extra work done, there was no need to rest any longer. So what I always tell people for rest is the better your, your general physical preparedness is, the better your cardiovascular fitness is um, the less rest you probably need. You know, you, if you, in your case, and I'm sure yours is through the roof, uh, you probably don't need to rest very long. And if you, and the way people can test it though, is just on one day, make sure it's the same exercise, Session to session, but one day you're going to do push ups. So you say, okay, today I'm going to rest 60 seconds. I'm going to do three sets and I'm going to see what I can get. And then the next time you go in, say, now I'm going to rest 90 seconds and see if there's a difference. If your 90 seconds yielded more work performed, then you need to start resting 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then the next week, maybe you say, okay, I'm going to give two minutes a shot if you give two minutes a shot and it did not yield any extra work performed, there was no reason for you to rest two, two minutes. You're just, now you're just making your training take longer for no reason. Mm -hmm. So you might as well reduce those rest periods. So um, that's how I would approach rest for people when it comes to strength training or for hypertrophy training, regardless of what kind of exercises you're doing. um, Don't get hung up on, you know, in CrossFit they do a lot of metabolic conditioning or Metcon where it's a lot of work performed with minimal rest. And the goal is not to increase the weight that you're lifting it. That's not a hypertrophy session. That's not a strength training session. So people have to recognize that. Now, if your primary goal is not strength and hypertrophy, if your primary goal is I'm busy, I want to be healthy. I want to lose body fat and have some muscle. Then yeah, rest 60 seconds, re- take short rest periods. As I mentioned, you're still going to get some strength adaptation. You're still going to build um, some hypertrophy and you're going to get done faster and it's going to be more efficient. So you're what, rest interval you take uh interest you know interest set and even day-to-day a lot of that's going to depend on how you how what your goal is and that's why i think clearly defining your your primary goal and your secondary goal you know and listing those objectives is going to help you look at your training and, and identify oh maybe this is not optimized for what i want um yeah so hopefully that's hopefully that makes sense
0: yeah, no, I think it's, it's like perfectly simple and complex at the same time.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's kind that's, of funny how that works. <laughs> that's one of the biggest things I do it myself. Like we always second guess ourselves. It's one of the reasons why in the bodybuilding world, you'll have very high level and we're talking world-class bodybuilders and they have a coach and you think to yourself, these guys have to know what they're doing. I mean, they've been doing this for 20 years, but like, but they second guess themselves into making poor decisions. And so I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes having a resource where you can just ask somebody, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. Does this sound good? You know, and I think for a lot of people, that's the whole draw. They, they may do a little bit of research. So they understand, okay, I think this is what I need to do. And even though they could exercise the plan, sometimes just having that second set of eyes and somebody to say, Hey, everything's good. Calm down, stay the course. You know, I think sometimes that's all, all you Need another person for is just to help you not overthink because, like you said, it's really not complicated. Mm-hmm. It, it, some of the concepts are complicated, but but it's really not complicated. But we tend to, as humans, overcomplicate things. Um, when at times that's that's the last thing that you should do.
0: All right, folks. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, jujitsu. And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show. Do do you notice that uh, when folks come into the, the calisthenics type of workout plan, with a background in more just like the free weight lifting or something like that, that they have a transition period in terms of just how much soreness or how much they're able to tolerate because the example I usually use from the running side of things. I could get super fit for a really flat race, but then if I decide after, you know, taking a little bit of time off and getting back into it to decide to do a race, that's got a lot of steep climbing and descending. I can only tolerate like, maybe two thirds of the volume of what I would have been able to do on the, on the flat stuff as my body kind of catches up with the mechanics and the variances that are different running up and down steep climbs versus flat roads. Is there a similar kind of like, I guess a transition period for folks coming from free weights to calisthenics and vice versa?
1: Um, If you, if you have a history of, of resistance training with whatever medium be it kettlebells or barbell, uh, all of that will make the calisthenics easier just because your, your, your base level of strength is higher. But what it also highlights is some of the deficiencies people have, for example, I'll have people as far as how they've developed strength. So I'll have people that come from, you know, doing traditional, or primarily barbell work and they'll think, "Wow, I deadlift. So my core's super strong. And then they're like, wow, my core was terrible. I guess they don't realize it until they look because for, for, Progressive calisthenics, your your core is insanely important. Like you've got to have a very very strong core, and so like uh, there's that. There's also some shoulder shoulder mobility. A lot of lifters don't realize how poor their shoulder mobility is. Sometimes hip mobility. Certain things get amplified a little bit. And and the thing is, those lifters would still be ahead of general pop with where their strength is and their core and everything else. It's not that they're weak. It's just that in a relative sense, they've developed much, much stronger pecs or whatever in relation to the core. So I, I find with people that are used to like a traditional barbell, um, you know, training, it's really more of just highlighting where they maybe ha- don't have as much strength developed, um, as opposed to what their strong points are. But yeah, I, they're still at an advantage, you know, just because mm-hmm. they have that base level of strength.
0: They probably also just have their background working against them too. Cause if they, they get to a point where like, this is what I can tolerate. And uh, then by changing anything, you're going to take at least a little bit of a step backwards as you kind of get used to it. And then you, sometimes your, your own ego gets in your way then. So it's it, like, I it's, used to be able to do this.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really humbling just because you could be a, a you know, a, a prolific lifter or a proficient lifter um, and you've put in paid your dues for years And so you've gotten to a certain point and what happens with calisthenics is that it's not that, and actually it's not that you're too weak in the majority of the muscles to perform the exercises there's a neurological component to strength. And so you just oftentimes haven't developed the strength through a specific movement pattern, Um, you know, planche, front lever, a lot of straight arm strength. It's just different. And so, so the good news for that is if you've already built a base level of strength, if you're, if you're a lifter, and you, let's say you look at somebody doing a human flag or, you know, a side lever, if, if you know, like somebody just basically straight off of a pole sideways, you'll get there faster if you're a lifter. If you're super large lower body, my legs are fairly big and it works against me. But, you know, if, if you're not proportioned well, maybe that works against you. But somebody who has some strength built, that, that will come faster for you in general than somebody who has not trained in the past and built any strength just because they're starting from, from square one. Um, so for most lifters, yeah, there's, it's definitely humbling. You're going to basically be starting at square one, but you're going to make it through the progressions faster because the brain is going to learn the movement pattern. The muscles are already strong enough to do it or, or close where if you're new, you're still going to have to build the the muscles are starting from further behind. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Both people. So both trainees are going to have to make the neurological adaptations to that thing. But the individual that's already built some strength is going to get there faster just because it's one less obstacle to have to overcome. It's the neurological component, but the muscles are already developed to a point. And so that, that is going to happen much faster for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your, to kind of go along with that, people that are new to it, they don't have the same frustration sometimes because they're not used to being good at exercises it is. And so it's all new and it's a little more of like a, they're okay with the process versus like to bring up Zuby again. He was playing with pistol squats and stuff like that. And he's like, when we talked, he's like, dude, it was way humbling. Cause he's a strong guy yeah. And, yeah, and he's a strong guy and he's got good balance. It's not like he's not athletic, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he was like, dude, I couldn't believe how hard it was. I felt like I started from scratch. Like I was like, this is, this is terrible. I suck. You know? <laughs> um, and so there is that element of I suck and you're used to not feeling that way because you're used to being proficient. So yes, that, that taking a step back, can get frustrating for some people. And one of the biggest downsides to bodyweight strength training when it comes to progression is that there's a learning curve to each step where if you start resistance training and, you know, let's say the bench press, once you learn to bench press properly at that point, all you're doing is you're adding additional load but the bench press is still the bench press and it's always going to be the bench press little tweaks to your form and stuff. But, but once you bench press, it's the same for 30 years, right? It's not going to change. And one of the things that, one of the things that that is advantageous for is when it comes time to overload your training and you say, okay, now I'm at 12 reps, 13 reps, let's add two and a half pounds to each side of the bar. Okay. Now it's a little harder. I'm down to eight reps. You, you can incrementally overload easily. And efficiently, and that's the biggest place where barbell training is better than calisthenics in general. When it comes to progressive calisthenics, body weight strength training, what happens is if you're doing push-ups and you're really good at push-ups, and I say, okay, now we're going to go to uneven push-ups to start working you toward a a um, a true one-arm push-up. For some people, they may go from doing a ton of reps. It might be a massive a massive shift to where they're like, I can only get two or three, right? So. They may, they may have weeks where they're performing this new movement that, that we say, okay, now it's time for you to, like you mentioned a one-arm pull-up. The jump from a, from a regular pull-up to, a, if you can do 50 pull-ups, you still can't do a one-arm pull-up. There's no number of regular pull-ups that'll, that'll equate to being able to hop there and do one-arm pull-up. It's just completely different. You have to make these neurological adaptations to single-arm pulling, um, but the jump is so big. It's not like you can just add five pounds, add five pounds, add five pounds until you get there. You have to do these new movements, it's whether it's archer pull-ups, different stuff. And each step can have an adaptation period where you're making that neurological adaptation to that thing, where if you're doing pull-ups at the gym or, or even at home, I guess, you could just wear a weighted vest. Boom, I just added five, five pounds to my pull-ups. So adding weight to a bar or wearing a weighted vest, those are easy ways to overload. And when you're doing a new progression, a new progression is often tweaking a movement pattern and there's that neurological adaptation. So the other part that can be frustrating for people is having it take months to get good at a new movement. So then they can start training that movement with enough volume to, to replace the old movement. Is it hopefully that makes sense?
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's very clear. Thank you. Um, Yeah. I think, uh, other than that, I wanted to chat a little bit just about kind of like your nutrition protocol. I know you kind of outlined your, your progression through all of it. Uh, are you, and then if I remember right, we ended with, uh, you, you kind of tried a little bit of a carnivore approach as like a reset or like a 30 day trial period, just to kind of see what, what would happen if there would be any improvements, any deficits and things like that. Did you kind of continue on with it afterwards or did you decide to start bringing in some other foods outside of uh, the animal products.
1: So when I did it, I decided at first I did, uh, basically beef, eggs, water, and I, and salt. Um, I did that for 30 days to see what would happen. And the thing, and I, the thing is I was already keto going into this. So it wasn't like I was coming from a standard American diet or anything like that. I'd been low carb being 125 grams of carbs or below for since 2009 when I, after I read warrior diet, I'd been intermittent fasting. So I'd already been doing an ancestral type diet for a long time. And I still saw immediately noticeable differences. I I dropped body fat. Um, as far as my energy levels, nothing tanked. I felt great. My, like I mentioned, the skin issues, GERD, everything improved. And the biggest thing for me was, uh, It was almost like kind of liberating not to have to make vegetables and cook all this other stuff, you know, (laughs) um, the efficiency was great, but I did it for a month and, and everything improved. Then I thought, okay, I, and I don't know if it was, I was eating a lot of spinach, kale, I was eating a lot of leafy greens. So I can't, you know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what the offensive thing that I dropped from my diet was. Um, but I knew that having clear skin and not having GERD was, was hugely beneficial. I didn't want that to come back. Uh, so I decided, okay, I'm going to stick with this for a while and make sure that it, I'm not just temporarily seeing relief. So there was the first seven months after 30 days, I added in fish, shrimp, pretty much all other animal type products, dairy. I added dairy back in some cheese, cream, stuff like that. Uh, and I did that for seven months and I, and I actually added back in like spices, basic garlic, salt, stuff like that. So I spiced my meat up a little bit more, but aside from spices and, and coffee, it was still strict carnivore. If you, if you count dairy as straight carnivore, um, after seven months, I started eating more ground beef. I was doing lots of steak originally and salmon and stuff like that. And then I decided to, to add more ground beef in partially just for cost. You know, I've got a family and kids and stuff like that. And also because my kids don't want to eat steak every day, although, <laughs> although they do like it, um, I can cook ground beef and then I can make like enchiladas for them. My, my kids are not low carb or anything like that. Now there's my wife, they eat healthy foods, but they're not, You know, they don't eat like me. Mm -hmm. So it's easy for me to cook two pounds of ground beef and then they have tacos or, you know, so I decided, okay, I'm gonna eat more ground beef. And I know there's people that do this uh, consistently, but I don't enjoy just a bowl of ground beef with salt. It's not my thing. And so I decided, okay, I can make this infinitely more palatable by sauteing a little bit of onions and garlic. And so the first things I added in was just onions and garlic to my ground beef. So I added those in and then I tolerated those well for a few weeks. So then I ended up adding chipotle. If you're familiar with like chipotle peppers, mm-hmm. I started chopping the chipotle up with the ground beef and the onions. Cause I like spicy food. And I was a little bit nervous because of nightshades. Um, but I had no issue. So I started doing chipotles. And then after a few months of that, I started adding avocados in here and there. Um, so these days it's very similar to that where I spice my meats up. I'll use garlic, onion, cilantro in ground beef bowls. I'll do garlic, onion, cilantro, chipotle peppers. So I'll spice my ground beef up pretty well. If I'm eating like steak or salmon or whatever, it's, it's usually just the meat. I don't really mess with it and add anything else. So I'm, so I'm not carnivore now. I'm probably getting 90 some percent of my calories from animal foods. It might even be 95%. Only reason it'd probably be 99% because spices and, and onions and garlic are so low in calories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but avocado is fatty. And so if I eat a couple avocados a week, you're already at, you know, six, 700 calories for that week. So, um, but majority of my calories are coming from animal foods and the plants that I do use, it's just those few that I named, I'll use those as meat enhancers for ground beef to make them into like, I guess the best way to describe it's I'm kind of like making a Chipotle bowl without the rice, without the beans, without any grains. Um, but it's primarily just when I'm doing ground beef. So it's So it's still very northern hemisphere hunter gatherer mostly meat um and then just a little bit of plant foods like that Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i think it 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 certainly makes sense i think for for what you're doing in a lot of cases i want to say what was wasn't it gymnasts was the the group of professional athletes that they found actually made some improvements on a ketogenic diet versus you know some it it gets wonky because you go from like zero carb or carnivore ask to like keto. And then you have high fat, low carb. And I think people confuse a lot of those things from time to time, but like, yeah, I think the gymnast actually improved on even strict keto, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they,
1: In that study, what they did is cause cause one of the things you'll see, and I disagree with it. Um, one of the things you see touted a lot on social media is if you're serious about getting strong, if you want to make strength gains, whatever, um, you got to eat carbs. And if you think about it, your if you think about the energy systems in the body you've got your phosphocreatine energy system which is like short-term burst type strength and you've got glycolytic and then you've got primarily your your fat burning in the mitochondria right so if you're more endurance based you're using predominantly fat and as you get to more intense exercise the other energy systems take over and generate a higher percentage of the energy Um, but unless you're doing all out repeated sprint type and i don't mean running in a sprint necessarily it can be cycling it can be running it could be whatever it could be lifting if you think about crossfitters when they do metcon if you think about pushing yourself to your max capability repeatedly in a, in, a, in a fairly short time period so maybe it's like you know crossfitters they might have a 45 minute session where they're just pardon the term but balls to the wall for like 45 minutes there's studies they've done on CrossFitters, and they have put them on a ketogenic diet, and even after a month, their performance goes down, and it's because they're doing highly, highly glycolytic training over time, and the difference with gymnasts is gymnast events are, they might look graceful and all that. They are power, strength-based events. They're, they are considered elite strength athletes worldwide, right, and these were elite male gymnasts, so these were not low-level gymnasts. They were world-class athletes, and they did a 30-day ketogenic diet, and they saw no reduction in performance, everything was the same. And except that they did is they actually dropped body fat while they were doing the ketogenic diet, which for a gymnast, because your power to weight ratio improves, your overall performance can improve, even if your strength is not necessarily higher, right. And the thing that's interesting about that study, it wasn't like a 20 25% protein ketogenic traditional ketogenic study, it was 35% protein which ironically is right around where most carnivore diet people hover in the 35% protein range. Most people that were keto, then they try carnivore. When they go from 20% protein to 35% protein, it, it happened for me. I noticed a pro- improvement to performance. So for people that are already keto and they go carnivore, I do think some of the benefits they see to athletic performance come from that protein level increasing. Um, and that's what happened in, this, in the case with these gymnasts. But the reason I think a low-carb diet lends itself well to – gymnasts like that is their routines are short. The longest routine, I think is a minute and a half, like their floor routines, a minute and a half. So they have to be able to sustain a high level performance for a minute and a half and then they're done. And even in that minute and a half, it's not like a sprinter that's just doing repeated 40 yard, you know, NFL wide receiver, for example, or a DB. I think some of those type positions, even where it's absolute top end speed, or you might get a ball thrown over your head some of those type of positions, I, I can, in my head, make an argument for why maybe carbohydrates, maybe you daddy the same athlete on a low-carb diet, may not do as well as a high-carb diet, just because of the nature of what they have to do. Um, but outside of those repeated sprints, yeah, I, I really do think that you won't see a performance benefit once you've become adapted to a low-carb diet, as long as your protein is high enough. I, I saw no setback myself, um, and from people that I've talked to that are – Again, because of the different energy systems that are used, if you're performing a set of, for example, um, one-arm push-ups, it takes like 20 seconds. It, you, you have enough your, – your phosphocreatine energy system, you have enough basically the, the ATP being generated without needing dietary glucose from muscle glycogen that's stored from the, from your food the day before. for that For that training session, to do – three sets of push-ups and three sets of squats, three sets of deadlifts or whatever. If you're training sessions like 45 minutes long, I really think if you took the same athlete and provided their fat adapted, so yes, you've been low carb long enough to make the adaptations and, and feel good because you're, you're, the way you feel mentally makes a big difference. If an athlete's feeling tired, if you're feeling like crap and you go lift, sometimes you're not going to have as good of a session. Um, but from my experience and, and even thinking about the science, I, I think when people try to say you're going to perform better with carbs – I don't think that's the case for people who are weight training or resistance training um unless when you're talking about an athlete in a competitive sport yeah maybe it's different like what we're not we're not like you're not performing a set of deadlifts and as soon as you put the bar down I'm throwing you back under there again and screaming at you to do more deadlifts mm-hmm. the training's only so glycolytic does that make sense so yeah
0: yeah it's almost like the 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 activity itself is so high intensity that you're going to have muscle failure far before you get glycogen depletion in any meaningful right. way.
1: And yeah, you're not going to hit glycogen you, you're not going to deplete muscle glycogen in a regular weight training session. And unless you're maybe and I don't even know if this is the case, but maybe in your your 2-hour German volume bodybuilding guys that are in the gym for 2 hours straight doing 20 25 rep sets or something. But but for most people And especially that's not applicable when you're talking strength because you're not going to do 20, 25 rep sets for building strength. So for strength, when when your sets are shorter and you're working in the five to eight rep range, maybe 10 reps, somewhere in that, when when that's what you're doing, I honestly don't think carbs matter one bit. They've not set me back at all. Um, And some of the movements, like, I I don't know how long it's going to take me, but there's like a Victorian cross, like literally there's less than hundred humans in the world that can do it. Like it's, it's so, so difficult, but I'm not that far away. Mm -hmm. So if I can do these elite level skills that only literally the strongest gymnasts in the entire world can do, these are world-class athletes and I'm not eating carbs. You know what I mean? Like I I really think that yes, for some sports, and I mean, you know, dude, you, you, for the sport you do, and you've Mm -hmm. probably tried it. Carbohydrate has a place in fueling an athlete. But your body makes glucose and you have enough to a point. So Mm -hmm. I think unless your sport is pushing you past the point where you can't access it from muscle glycogen or or recycle right fast enough to generate it, I don't think you need it. I don't think it'll make Mm -hmm. even if it theoretically made a difference, I don't think functionally it'll make a difference. So hopefully that makes sense. If you're out there and you're weightlifting or your resistance training and you're not doing super high volume training, I don't think it makes a difference based on what I've seen, what I've experienced, what I've read. Um, So Mm -hmm. so that's my take on it.
0: Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense to me. That's, That's been my experience too. It's like if I reduce my volume and not even necessarily my intensity too much, like I can get closer to like a strict ketogenic diet and still hit my workouts. But then when I start kind of building volume and have enough intensity still in that plan where you know, I might go out for a run in the morning where I could start with full glycogen stores and end with very low glycogen stores, right, and then possibly have another workout that evening, or certainly the next morning, if I want to hit that next workout, like I kind of have to speed up that process a little bit from the cycling uh, on top of the cycling, I suppose. Um, And that's where I kind of find myself in those phases of training where I bring my carbs up closer to like a high fat, low carb definition versus like a strict keto or, Um, Certainly zero carbs. So it's like the other way I try to explain sometimes too is like if you look at just like your glycogen reserves as like kind of a staircase going down, that's kind of how an endurance athlete often ends up kind of behaving if they don't have enough exogenous carbohydrate coming in, is you might get away with it for a few days. But if you're actually kind of in that peak training phase, you're eventually going to get to the bottom of that staircase and then you're going to be like, you know, hit by a wall. If you try to do anything
1: especially you bring up a good point when you have multiple training sessions in a day your your body so even even when you're low carb zero carb muscle glycogen is without muscle without glycogen you die like it's it's you Mm -hmm. have to have it so your body's making it independent of diet right Mm -hmm. and the reason if you think about it uh if you let's say food is very scarce and you haven't eaten in three or four days you need to have You know, your senses need to be sharp. You need to be able to go on a hunt. And so that's, you know, some of that mental clarity people get when they're fasting. But the reason that people sometimes in four days into a fast are like, man, I set a deadlift PR. Not that that's optimal for hypertrophy. Not that that's how you want to train all the time. But it's because if you think logically back to, you know, evolutionary biology. Yeah, because if you don't make that, the hungrier you get, the more efficiently you're going to make a kill. Because it could be life or death.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. You're not fat, dumb, and happy right now. You're starving. So, you know, I think that that's partially why I'm like, look for short duration, high intensity performance to think that you need to carb up is stupid because it goes against evolutionary biology. Like, no, I guarantee you, I could give you hundred percent right now for 20 seconds or 10 seconds or what, you know, for, for a reasonable duration. And mm-hmm. then if you let me rest two or three minutes, but what people don't realize is your body is depleting muscle glycogen. And at the same time, it's replenishing it it's not just like, people think that it's just like burning glycogen and making none, mm-hmm. but it's depositing glucose back in as you, you know, as, as it's recycling the intermediaries for, for creating energy. So unless you, that's why I mentioned CrossFit. Now, if you said, give me, give me 20 seconds right now. And if I say, okay, then if I'm still huffing and puffing and 30 seconds later, you go, okay, give me another 20 seconds. Yeah, I'm probably going to benefit from carbs at that point. Cause now I'm having to perform repeated high intensity sprint type stuff with all out faster than I can recover and let my body you know what I mean mm-hmm. so that's yeah. why I think if're you're, if you're resistance training with high intensity work and you're giving yourself a couple minutes of rest, yeah e- even from a performance standpoint, I really don't think unless you're, unless your session's going to go on past forty five minutes an hour yeah there's a point it 's all about your body being able to recycle and, and refill things quickly enough for you to have the available energy there you're going to get to a point and maybe it's different for different people, but wherever you get to that point where now you cannot access glycogen fast enough. Now you're going to see a, a perceivable drop off in performance. And, and theoretically, if I carved up before doing the, hey, give me 20 seconds, maybe with instrumentation, there would be some kind of advantage you could find. I don't think it would be measurable though. You know, But by, by my performance, if, if I can give you 12 reps, I'm still going to give you 12 reps, carbs or not. Mm-hmm. And if you let me rest three minutes, I'll give you the same amount. I mean, I've tried it. I've, I've tested with there's carbohydrate source called Vitargo that athletes use. There's there's mm-hmm. all this different stuff. I've tested it just out of curiosity because I'm, you know, like I like to do that kind of stuff, and I've never found a difference in my strength training. Mm-hmm. Now, my strength training is not, I'm not running 40s, I'm not an NFL athlete. So I openly admit, yes, for certain sports, probably would benefit from carbohydrates. But for people listening to this, don't fall into the trap where where people on social media will tell you, well, you gotta have carbs if you want to, to lift or if you want to do this or that. You you don't. You just need to like I mentioned earlier, you really got to clearly define your goals. What, what are your goals and what are you trying to do? And then you can really maybe take a little bit more of a, of a nuanced approach and say, okay, because I want to do X or Y, like you can get very, very strong. We mentioned the gymnast study, you get very, very strong on a very low carbohydrate diet. So if that's your goal, then yeah, don't, don't be swayed into carbohydrates if, if that's not something you want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I
0: think once, when you get to into the, when you come to the conclusion, I think that all these are essentially tools and then you just have to ask yourself, like, you know, what tool can I use to achieve this goal and you know, how much of it do I need and how does it affect me individually versus, you know, my friend over there who has this particular like tolerance or intolerance and all that stuff. It's like, I think the picture gets a little clearer in terms of kind of piecing some of that stuff together.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. I think, I think one of the things in this, whole whole nother, you know, off topic a little bit, but we all have a different, a different um, makeup mentally. And so there's people, you know, like you have the people online, oftentimes they're fitness, fitness industry, you know, people, um, but they, they tend to really focus on the calories in calories out, you know, the established Kiko model. And the thing is that even in a clinical setting, if that holds true, it, functionally in the real world for most people, it, it fails. Um, it, it failed for me. Right. And so I think the thing to identify is that just because theoretically you could eat Oreos and be shredded doesn't mean that you should eat Oreos and be shredded. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think it, it really comes down to the individual. Some people, maybe they want to stick to, Hey, I want to experiment with some carbohydrates. I'm going to, I'm going to see how I feel with some honey during my training or, or before my training. Um, I think you should definitely be open-minded and not be dogmatic and and be okay with experimentation. But the only thing I would caution is if you are formerly a a fat guy like me, make sure that when you, if you do try experimenting, experiment in a way that's not gonna set you down a path of eating a bunch of shit, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because that's why I got fat in the first place. I, I will openly admit, like I'm not the guy that can track all my food and eat four Oreos. If you give me four Oreos and there's a sleeve there, I'll eat the sleeve four Oreos. Yeah. I'm coming back for the rest of the sleep. <laughs> it's not anybody else's fault. It's just the way it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and so for me, um, I think if you're, if you do make the determination, like, Hey, this is what I'm doing athletically. This is, these are my training goals. Um, you know, I've been carnivore for this amount of time or whatever. I'm going to try some honey. I'm going to do whatever it is I'm going to do. Some people do like refeeds. Hey, every, every leg day I go eat sushi, whatever. Try to set yourself up so that your experimentation doesn't become an excuse for gluttony because, mm-hmm you can backslide and, 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 you know, you can take back the the results that you've made and the foundation you've laid. You can lose that um, if you're not careful. So that's the only thing I would caution if you're like me and you kind of have that. I mean, I I love food. I I can eat a dude. Yeah. I I love food. So I have to be careful with that kind of stuff. So that's the only thing I would caution is don't, don't um, use your athletic goals as an excuse to eat like crap and then, you know, backtrack on your goals.
0: Sure. No, it's, it's good to know yourself and be honest with yourself with a lot of that stuff too. So it's, uh,
1: yeah, I, I don't think- get mad at the guys that can eat four Oreos. Dude, if you if you're, if you're the guy out there that can eat four Oreos, I'm a little bit jealous. Cause I can't do that. Like, you know, I know I just have to keep that crap out of my, out of my mouth. And and I've learned myself, like to what your point right there, exactly. Know yourself, know your limits. Um, some people for like in myself, I didn't know with, with my skin and with my GERD, if I was going to have to stay strict carnivore forever. And to be honest with you, I'll do it. Like if you've ever had psoriasis on, it was in between my fingers, coming up around the top of my head. It was very annoying. So if I had to stay strict carnivore forever, I would gladly do it. I enjoy a little avocado and some stuff in my ground beef. I'm happy I can do that. Um, but I'm more than willing to go back and just cut that stuff out if I needed to. Uh, I'm not the guy that could ever go stick Oreos and ice cream and stuff back in. Outside of like my, my wife and I for our anniversary, we went to this place that has this like world-class cheesecake and we split a slice mm-hmm. and I bought one slice. That's all I can eat. When I, mm-hmm. when I was gone, it was gone. So I'm, I'm not these days, my daughter and I split some sushi a while back. I'm not like 100% of my food's not, you know, ancestral there's the occasional for a special occasion or for something like that. I've got kids, we go do something, but I I don't ever eat crap at my house. Cause I, I can't, self-regulate like that i just i have i struggle with it. it it's one of my weaknesses so for me the only time i would deviate from my diet is if there's some reason for it and we're at a like good good restaurant which with all this covid going on we're not really at any restaurants but you know so one day maybe it's not going to be in 2020 but like if i go to new york i don't know what the best pizza in new york is but i would probably eat a slice sure um mm-hmm my skin hasn't flared up. Thankfully, when I did go strict carnivore, it set me on a path where whatever was going on has has resolved. Um, but for me, I, if I started working carbs back into my diet, I'm not a competitive athlete. And if I did, I really do think I would, I would probably gain some body fat because I, I have personally have a problem just eating half a cup of, of whatever. You know what I mean? It's, there's something mm-hmm. which is why I got fat in the first place. So So for me, it's not something I want to explore. And like I mentioned before, I don't think most people need to anyways for strength. Um, so yeah, that, that's my little nugget of wisdom based on my own experience anyways.
0: No, it, it makes perfect sense. And I think, uh, I think, uh, we've touched on a lot of cool, cool stuff and it's been, it's been great to have like, you know, the, the, the download of, uh, the calisthenics body weight stuff and kind of hear your approach with that as well as nutrition. But, um, If, uh, if you have any spots that you want to share for our listeners to be able to come and find you, I know you mentioned your YouTube channel has quite a bit of content on it uh, on any other social media platforms or websites, feel free to to share that. And I'll also put it in the show notes so folks can click over onto it.
1: Yeah, I, so I have a website, it's bodyweightstrength.fit. I'm not sure when this will post, but within the next week, I'm going to have it completely updated. And so that'll have links to everything. Um, and it's a resource that'll, that'll basically house my content on my, on Twitter. It's my name, just Jerry Texera. And the last name is T E I X E I R A. Um, YouTube's also just my name, but if you have questions on anything, if, if you want to give, you know, body weight, strength, training, a shot, calisthenics, a shot, I always help as much as I reasonably can free. I'm, I don't sell programs or anything, i am actually started working on a book. So one day I'll have that out. Um, but mostly, you know, this t- style of training has allowed me to not, not skip a beat with COVID gym shutting down, didn't matter. My lifestyle didn't get affected as far as my training goes. And it's allowed me to spend a lot of time with my kids and my family. And so if I can share that with people, I'm, I'm not trying to charge for it. You, YouTube's free. All my stuff is free. Check it out. Um, and, and I'll try to help you as best that I can.
0: Very cool. Folks can get your book and pair it up with Ted uh, Naiman's PE Ratio book and they'll be off to the races.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for coming on and taking some time out of your day.
1: Yeah, it was fun, man. I appreciate it.
0: Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit For our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at HPO podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.